This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. So we are in Exodus chapters 13 and 14. So let me say off the top, today we're covering a bunch, right? Yeah, we're covering a bunch and stuff. Because there was so much really good stuff inside here and stuff. So, you know, just cancel your plans and stuff, you know. But um, <laughs> that, that's it. If second service comes in, just move over. We're going to fill in all the seats and stuff. Um, but we're walking in today. So, listen. So, I'm not going to read in the front. I'm going to do some reading in the back. But I'm just going to start in and um, just start. Just start talking. So just, just, just follow with me as we just we fly over and zoom in. So as you guys know, if you haven't been walking with us and just seeing how, how things has been, um, God, as we're walking through the book of Exodus, God has been at war with the enslaver of his people. Right? right? right. He's been at war with the enslaver of his people. And then, and then, then, then last week, there was this... This, this, this one big moment where after a series of, of, of plagues during this war, Pastor Aaron was preaching. He started to talk about this, this, this final plague, right? This final plague, which was God sending an angel of destruction to kill all of the firstborn, right? Now, what's important about this as we leave and we go into chapter 13 see God spares every firstborn whose whose home was covered by the blood of the lamb and and then and then after that like things were just getting hectic and finally Pharaoh is like man go ahead and go right he, and he, he lets them go and then they leave they leave there's some Egyptians that are with them when they leave and then and then they, they were finally free from their captivity, right? They're finally free from their captivity. Captivity. Finally, they are no longer slaves. Now, as we enter into chapter 13, what you see here is that they finally left Egypt. But as they leave Egypt, there are some very important um, instruction that God gives to, to Moses to give to the people in verses 1 and 2. So I'm going to look at what he says to them. He says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine." So, so, so he says, like, do this thing. So Moses starts talking to the people, and he talks to them about the Feast of Unleavened, Bre- Feast of Unleavened Bread. Pastor Aaron talked about that last, last week. He talked to them about how this sets a new calendar for them. And then he starts unpacking the consecration of the firstborn to the Lord. He outlined this, this liturgy that would reenact what happened in Egypt, right, where the destroyer went to take the life of every firstborn, but he didn't take the life of those whose homes were marked by the blood of the lamb because the blood represented a lamb that was killed on their behalf, thus redeeming them. Right. It's important that we understand, understand what's happened here. The, the destroyer goes over, and, and these houses are houses that would have been destroyed because it's not because they were so good, but something else died in its place, a lamb. There go the blood 
something else happened. Thus, this is them being redeemed, okay? Now, to redeem means to, to buy out, to ransom. It means to buy out, to ransom, or to be released, okay? Be released. To be released means to, to set something free. And he specifically does their firstborn child because it represents Israel. And he already has defined them as his firstborn child and then speaks into the future with, with Jesus. So it's important that we understand this morning as we go into this text that we, as the children of God, have been redeemed. Which means that we have been bought and set free from our old slave masters. It's important that we understand that. We have been bought and set free. Free from our old slave masters. Now, the problem is that we think too much like Pharaoh, though. We think too much like Pharaoh. Pharaoh viewed himself as a self-sufficient God, depending and trusting on no one but himself or no one greater than himself, right? And this is how we tend to view ourselves. So we think if God has truly delivered us, if he's truly freed us from our old slave masters, then freedom looks like autonomy. That's what we think is out of our heart. It, it, it looks like independence and from, from, from everything, even God. That, that's me, free. I have no rules and I have nothing holding me back. I'm just completely independent. We process going from slave master to no master at all. But in verses 1 and 2, his direction to Moses is consecrate the firstborn to him, and then he makes plain their minds. It's important that we understand this. God turns around and says this because, see, if you have been redeemed, you no longer belong to your old slave master. Neither do you belong to yourself. You belong to your Redeemer. We need to know this. I am not my own. You belong to your Redeemer. Now, some of us ask, well, if I just went from master to master, then how am I, how am I free? See, when God frees us, he frees us into him. And there's a point that we understand that true freedom is only found in Christ. Right, right. So this is the true essence of freedom. It's only found in Christ. Only in Christ am I free to truly be human because humanity is fashioned after him, created after him. The only way that you know to be truly free is in Christ. Only in Christ am I free to be what I was created to be. You see, out Side of Christ is slavery. It's slavery to an oppressive system of idolatry, a system where I oppress and I am being oppressed. And that's something that we have no idea of, the depths of the oppression happening both to us and through us. Since we don't know that we do things that are oppressive because outside of Christ, that's what it is. So in Christ is true freedom. Also outside of Christ is slavery to self. So the first thing that God does when they leave out, his very first thing is, let me make it clear, your minds. So then the story goes back into the narrative of the, 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 the route that they took when they left Egypt. Now I want to look at something here in 17 through 18. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. 
For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. There was a, a, a quicker and more closer route for God to take. But he chose the longer one. A quicker and more closer. It's right there, but he chose the longer one. That's because God knew his people wasn't ready for war. They didn't want none of that. He knew that. He like, they, they don't want none of that. Right? God knew at the first sign of confrontation, they would run back to their old slave master. Get this. Get this. He knew at the first sign of confrontation, they would run back to their old slave master. They would run back to what was familiar to them, even if that familiarity was slavery. So he fixed it so that they couldn't run back by taking them the long route. So now Egypt is too far away for you to turn around and run back to it. You see, sometimes God intentionally takes us the longer route because he knows our hearts. He knows what you're wrestling with. He knows the deep things on the inside. So sometimes he intentionally walks us the scenic route. Even though we so desperately want for God to take us the quick route. To do the quick and easy fix to, to make the long suffering short. But there's a level of formation that only happens in the long route. It's a level of formation that this is the only place that, that, that it happens. And if, and if he skips the process of formation and takes the quick and easy route, because of a lack of formation, we would fold when confronted by the old slave master. When things go wrong, we would run back to what's familiar, even if that's bondage. So we need to know if God takes us the long and scenic route, A, He's being very strategic. He's not being, he's not procrastinating. He's not messing up somewhere. He is being very, very strategic and also know he is perfectly good. We continue to walk through um, Exodus and then, and they're leaving out. And it's awesome. You know, I just thought about this. Just thinking about in Exodus 13 and 19, he, they're, they're leaving out, and it says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with them. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So I looked at, well, when did Joseph say this? In, in Genesis, before this all goes down, 50, 24 to 25, it says, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from out of here. You see, even though things were, were good in Egypt, right, at the time when they were being brought in, Joseph still knew that God would need to deliver them out of there. See, sometimes along the way, God gives us these promises, and we'll stop at the thing that we feel is really, really good. But Joseph knew, no, 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 this isn't the promise. This isn't the promise. God is going to have to come and, and, and deliver y'all up out of here. And when he does it, make sure you snatch up my bones on your way out. 
You see, sometimes God gives these, these moments that reaffirm that he is keeping our promises, his promises. So they keep going. Then in Exodus 13, 21 to 22, it says this. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the, the people. All throughout Scripture, fire and, and clouds are associated with the presence of God. All throughout Scripture, there's over 34 verses in the Bible that, 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 that connect fire with God. Moses meets God in a burning bush. Then Jeremiah describes the Word of God. When he's describing the Word of God, he says, it's like fire inside of his heart, shut up inside of his bones. Even the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 29, describes God as a consuming fire, which is interesting because when Moses meets him, he says it was a fire inside of a bush, but the bush wasn't being consumed, which talks about the grace of God. See, the the point that we need to, to get here when we're looking at these things is the presence of God is with the people of God. Right. Even there's verses that connect the presence of God to, to clouds like in 1 King 8 and 10 where the presence of the Lord filled the house and it was in the form of a cloud. And in Matthew 17 and 5, the voice of the Father came through a cloud and publicly affirmed Jesus. And then I love 1 Thessalonians 4 and 17 when it says that we will be caught up together in the clouds with the Lord, meaning we will be caught up together in his presence. It's all about his presence. This is what makes the difference right here. The presence of God is, is, is with the people of God, and they were being led by the Spirit of God. And, and that's the distinction between, between being a child of God, that you are led by the Spirit of God. You're trusting the Spirit of God. Paul was thinking back to Exodus as he spoke to the church in Romans 8 and 14, and he said this, For all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, what's the marker for all who were led by the Spirit of God or sons of God? See, we don't just leave out of slavery because we decide to just man up. We don't just discipline ourselves. You know what? I'm going to muscle up, do 125 push-ups, and make my way out. We don't think deeply our way out of slavery. Nah, we are led out of slavery. We become sons and daughters following our Father through the leading of His Spirit. His presence and our obedience to Him leading us confirms our adoption. It's like a dad leading his child by the hand. Well, God leads them. And as He leads them, the story goes on to Exodus 14. Then in 14, verses 1 to 2, it says this. I didn't know it was going to do that. That's interesting. <laughs> like, how do I do that? That's dope. 
<laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front Pihahiroth. Perfect, right? <laughs> Between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. So, so God leads them to this spot where they're blocked off by the sea. He's, he's, he's going and he's leading them all, the, all over the place, and now he leads them to this spot where they're blocked off by the sea, and there's this land that's over here behind them. Like, if you just imagine that, they, they must have been confused. What is the Lord doing? First, he takes us this long route. We could have got here pretty quick. Then he leads them to the beach where there's nothing but water and nowhere to go. You see, sometimes God's strategic plans doesn't make sense to us. This is important for us to understand that. Sometimes he does things that just does not make any strategic sense. It doesn't, it doesn't fit in with our logic, but it's about following him. We don't know everything that's going on. John Piper, he says, he says God is doing 10,000 things and we know about three of them. He tells Moses that he's not done with Pharaoh yet. He tells Moses, I'm not done with Pharaoh yet. I'm going to harden his heart. That's what he tells Moses right here. And then the... So, so back in Egypt, right, he tells Moses, I'm not done with Pharaoh. I'm going to harden his heart. And then the, the scene cuts back to Egypt. And back in Egypt, the reality of letting the Hebrews go finally starts sinking in for Pharaoh and his servants. Egypt was in ruin. Animals dead, buildings destroyed, everything is gone. And, and, and they no longer had a workforce to build it up, much less maintain it. So Pharaoh is processing this, and despite how much he got his butt kicked, he's like, let's go get him and bring him back. Let's go get him. Let's go get him and bring him back. So he puts together what's left of his army. Now, we got to understand, when Pharaoh puts together this army, his army is massive. Like, during that time, the Egyptian army would have been one of the biggest, most impressive armies of their time. And he puts the army together, over 600 chariots, and, 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 and they go and they set out to catch them, and they catch up to them. Now, here's what happened when they catch up with them. Exodus 14, 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near... The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. They feared greatly. Though God had already delivered them in a mighty way, mighty way, the mere sight of Pharaoh had the same effect as before they were delivered. You see, as we read this 
story and we are looking how this speaks to us, we got to know that Pharaoh represents our old slave master. Whatever that thing is that, that we find ourselves in bondage to, culturally, physically, addictions and all, um, spiritually, whatever it is, he represents our old slave master. And sometimes, though we've already been set free, the mere sight of our old slave master produces the same fear as before we were set free. What does it tell us? It tells us that there is still a level of deliverance to be done. There's still a level of deliverance. There is still a level of power and authority that our old slave master has over our hearts. You see, we think deliverance is often like flicking a switch. And, and, And God can... And it often does, just does it like that, but, but oftentimes, more than not, deliverance is a process. Oftentimes, deliverance is a process. When I think about it inside that context, you think about Ephesians 2 and 8. Over there it says, I have been saved or I have been delivered, which means God has already done the work and freed me from spiritual bondage, Right? But when I think about 1 Corinthians 1 and 18, it says, I am being saved or I am being delivered. You see, there is a process of learning to walk in the truth and embodiment of that freedom. God has already done it over here, but I don't know what that looks like or even feels like. And then in Romans 8 and 23, it says, I will be saved or I will be delivered where there is this future hope of full freedom and deliverance at every single level. And in the meanwhile, we have these bouts of trusting God and giving in to the trauma of past bondage. And when I say trauma of past bondage, that expresses itself in fear and anxiety, you see this all walked out in verses 10 through 12. Look what it says. It says, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us, us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. See, it starts to become hard to trust the people that God is using inside of your life. You start thinking that they're trying to set us up. You really got some, some type of master plan behind what you're doing here. I'm super suspect of you. You start to think that the worst case scenario is going to happen. We're actually about to die out here. And, and No matter how much God has done, the mere sight of the old slave master starts to eclipse it all. Well, what Moses says to them in Exodus 14, 13 to 14, he says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you will have only to be silent. See, there's a part of us that's always waiting for God to fail us. No matter how much he's done. 
No matter how much he's done, there's a space that's sort of just reserved. This is going to be the moment where he stops. Just waiting for it to happen. And what made the fear a reality is that they knew that they were incapable of beating Pharaoh in their own strength. So Moses doesn't say, fear not, you're strong enough, you can do this. We got a whole bunch of us. He doesn't say, fear not, we're pretty smart. He doesn't say, fear not, our army is, is big. Instead, he gives four instructions. Fear not, stand firm, watch God, and shut up. And when I say shut up, like literally that's what this translation, ESV is being nice, right? Really, Moses is like, yo, shut up. Watch God do what, he's do what he does. You see, deliverance isn't about being made independent. It's about being made wholly dependent on God. There's nothing that they could do here. So the Lord tells Moses, here's the plan. I want you to split the sea, okay? I want you to split the sea, and I'm going to have y'all walk across on dry land. And when I say dry land, I mean y'all not walking across on muddy waters. I'm pulling everything out. What happens is the Egyptians will follow you, right? Right, right, right. But when they come down, I'm going to drown them. I'm going to flood them all out, all right? So Moses is like, all right, bet. And Moses starts splitting the sea. And it says that it, this is going on all night. So the Lord was just walking this thing out, right? And while Moses is splitting the sea, this, the pillar of fire and cloud that was in front of him comes around the back and protects them, right? And keeps them like there's nothing getting past while this process is going down. And then we get to one of the most significant sections of Scripture. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to read it out and then explain it. We get to the one of the most significant sections of Scripture that is referred back to all the way throughout the Bible. There's so many different times from, from Psalms and Jeremiah and Isaiah all the way to the New Testament. I'm going to read this. I'm going to read these next 10 verses. I want, to, I want to just slow down and read them intentionally. Verse Exodus 14, 21 through 25, and, and we read some of this earlier. Then the Lord stretched out his hand over the sea. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. And the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. And all the Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord and the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And that the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. 
Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Now, this section, um, it starts to, to remind me of, um, and you guys may not know, but uh, your pastor, Pastor Aaron, has a book called Create in Me, right? And in this book, what he talks about is how during creation, the creation itself, right? In Genesis 1, the Spirit of God hovered over the earth that was without form and void, meaning that it didn't have any order to it. And then there was the waters that was chaotic in the midst of this order. And what God does is he brings order to the chaos and he separates the waters and he made a safe place to start creating in. Inside the same book, he talks about how in the flood with Noah's ark, because of man's sin, the same waters that God had separated, because of man's sin, God withdraws his grace and allow those waters to come crashing back in. Allow those same waters that he put order to to become chaotic again and smash on creation. This is the same thing that's happening here. The same God that's, that's, that's separating the waters of chaos. And he's, he's making a safe space for his people. And he allows them to pass through the safe space. And then he removes his grace and allow the waters of chaos to come crashing down on the Egyptians. But, but here's something that we need to understand. It wasn't that the Israelites were so good and deserving. The key word here is his grace. If it's not for the grace and power of God, we would be crushed by the waters of chaos. This is what we need to walk in as we read through texts like this and we picture ourselves and we think about the grace of God over our life that keeps the waters of chaos from just crushing us. And every now and then he gives us glimpses of what he's protecting us from. I want us to look, as we start to round this out, I want to look at, at, at how the New Testament saints viewed these Old Testament saints through the lens of God's grace and, 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 and faithfulness, right? Let's, let's, let's jump ahead. I, I can tell you what we say, but here's what the writer of Hebrew says about them. He says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now, does this mean that as they pass through the sea with these walls of water on both sides that they had absolutely no fear at all? I doubt it. I doubt it. There's probably some people that was walking through and were like, man, God is doing it again. He's so dope. But most of them probably would have been like me, like, dang, dang. 
Dang. Most of us probably would have been more like me. I'm like, I know he did it, but if he don't do it right now. But regardless of what, it was all obedient. See, their obedience amidst God's faithfulness leaves them recorded in the hall of faith as faithful. See, they was reading the same text that we was reading. And the reason why I pointed out, in these texts, when I'm reading, I saw people that was doubting God at times. I saw people that was, that was angry at times, like, man, Moses, I hope God judges you. But nonetheless, when Moses said, let's go, it was there. Nonetheless, they're here. Despite their constant struggles, here they are, away from Pharaoh, out of Egypt, on the other side of the sea. You see, many of us are so focused on how many times we've doubted and failed that we overlook where God has brought us. Despite my failure, despite my, my doubt, I'm not in the same place that I was yesterday. I'm not in the same place that I was last year. I'm not in the same place that I was 10 years ago. For some reason, I kept following. Israelites didn't make it across because the, the quantity of their faith. They didn't make it across because the quality of their faith. It was because who they had faith in. Hallelujah, that's what the Bible talks about, faith the size of a mustard seed. It's not about how big it is. It's about who it's in. That's what makes the difference. Hallelujah. There are people with tremendously huge amounts of faith in things that have no substance. And the band could come up now. I think about... How Paul talks to them in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock is Christ. If we can see what God is doing with his people at this time, at this moment, God is baptizing them. He's taking them through the sea, and he's baptizing them. Let, let, let me tell you about baptism. It, 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 it symbolically and it's done in faith. And, and, and when you're being baptized, you go into the water, a slave to sin and death, and you come out of the water free while sin and death stays in the water. Oh, it's like washing clothes and with your hands. You, you wash it off and stuff, and the dirt comes off when you pull it out. The, the clothes is clean. The dirt is in the water. The Egyptians that followed them in the water represented the enslaving filth of sin and death. And God brings out of that water a people that he has personally cleansed and freed them from this filth of bondage. And the filth and oppression of sin stays in that water represented by the dead bodies of the Egyptians that get washed away. We need to know this as our identity that we are a people hand-washed by God. Hand-washed by God. Hmm. 
as we get ready for communion. I want to bring our attention to a conversation that happens. Jesus was about to go to the cross. And before he goes to the cross, he has this moment. Transfiguration. Let me just read what happens here. Now about eight days after these saying, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The reason why this conversation between Moses and Jesus is, is, is important and why I wanted to use it for communion is because the Greek word that is translated as departure is the same Greek word that's translated as Exodus. Moses and Jesus are having a conversation about Exodus. Why is this conversation between Moses and Jesus recorded for us? Because there's a greater Exodus that happens at the cross. Uh, these, these two exodus are connected inside the same narrative, but, but, but there's a greater exodus that happens at the cross. And if you could just imagine them having a conversation like, yo, 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 my exodus, I took them through the water. But what you're about to do with your exodus as you lead them through. See, communion calls us to remember even mightier works than the plagues that's done at the cross. It causes us to consider our freedom. Consider what God has paid for. And every single time that we take communion, we are remembering this exodus that we are connected to. And the moment that we believe in Christ, everything that happened at that Red Sea becomes our story. Because God connects us to that narrative, to that story. This morning as we go to the table, the bread, it represents his body that was given for us. This was, this was what he was talking about was going to happen in Jerusalem. The juice was represented his blood that was given for us. It's for the family. Those of us that believe. That's how it was done in faith. I'm going to ask for you to contemplate your freedom. And then those of us that are inside here that say, well, I want to be a part of that story. I want that to be my story. I want to ask you to meet us over here. We'll pray for you. We would love to invite you in. Listen, the tables are open. Let's break bread. Then let's worship. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.